Phoenix Founders Podcast is sponsored by Arizona Venture Development Corp. AVC invests in early stage tech startups and funds across multiple sectors, including software, while providing access to equity capital for underrepresented founders and communities in Arizona. Greg, what did you like most about our interview with Enoch? Well, I love a story. I'm always a sucker for a story of an immigrant founder who comes here and builds a really interesting company for a couple reasons. One, I think it requires a level of resilience and connection that's just hard to do. He came to this country not speaking the language as a, you know, someone in his youth. I think he was in his teenage, in his early teens, or and uh, started programming calculators. And so he fell in love with technology. Uh, but that sort of learning and engagement with technology, I think, was foundational for his entrepreneurial journey. So I love that. And I think he's, I just think he's a great founder and why, and this is why his company's, one of the reasons why his company is growing so quickly. And he immigrated twice, which I thought was, I mean, once as he said, I think a six-year-old and then as an 11-year-old, and that's got to be so tough on a kid. And both times he learned how to assimilate and learn the new language and a new culture. Make friends. And make friends, which is what he really wanted to do in the end. That's why he started programming. Yeah. He said he programmed games, I think, into the calculator so he could connect with other kids at school. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, me too. I think I would have shut down. Like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, I I loved it. What did, uh, did he say anything that surprised you or anything that stuck out to you? He did. What he said about the American tax code, I thought was really surprising and also funny because he said, I don't understand the American tax system, but he assumed that we all do and we don't. So he's like, I got to understand this. And he started what with an accounting services company. Yes. And that's what Soroban was grown out of. And I thought that was really surprising and interesting. Yeah. When he said, I, I didn't understand the tax code is really complex and I didn't know it was so complex. And I think everyone's like, uh, yeah, me too. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't realize it was that hard. I um, Another example of his resilience, I think, was he applied to Y Combinator, I think, three times, I yeah. think he said. And so to see him just constantly go back and try again. That I think that's an incredible uh, attribute for him. So fun to see, and I think those are reasons why his company is growing so quickly. And he's an example of uh, just an incredible Phoenix founder. Yeah, I think resilience stood out to me the, the most with him, which I think is a, a tenant of immigrant founders that for I've sure, seen. For sure. Yeah. I loved it. Me too. Hey, welcome back. We are here on the Phoenix Founders Podcast with Enoch Coe, the Sorban founder. Good to have you, Enoch. Thanks for having me. Allie, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing today? It's good. Good day. Good day. We're excited to have Enoch on the podcast and hear about Sorban's story. Phoenix Founders Podcast is about uh, founders in Arizona telling their story. Uh, you're in the trenches. You're building a, a, a company here. We're looking forward to, to learning more. I'd love to hear, we'd love to start with Sorban's origin story. Like, How mm. did this why did you start this company? What's the, what's the history here? And then would love after that, we'll, we'll drill down a little bit into your personal um, kind of background too. Yeah. Um, so it really started, uh, first of all, I was a software engineer for a couple of years um, and after gradu- graduating ASU, uh, studying computer science. And then um, I've actually uh, started like this contract um, with various companies. So I was helping four or five different clients at the same time and kind of saved up a lot of money and made a lot of money through contract, uh, contract engineering work. Um, and from there, I basically racked up a crazy amount of taxes. Um, it was close to $80,000 in that year. 
I was in around 2018. Um, and it was through uh, my friend uh, who was a CPA, um, kind of went through and talked to me about all the tax deductions and then setting up ass corporations, setting up payroll, doing QuickBooks and all these things. That ended up helping me save over $40,000 in that year as well. And so that made me, uh, I was so shocked by how much savings you can get, uh, but just by knowing the tax laws. And so, and I thought maybe I, I was the only one who didn't know about this. And then I went to a bunch of people uh, who were just kind of like similar, um, kind of, uh, they were doing the contract works as well. And they all didn't know anything about these, um, the ways to save taxes. And so I basically uh, found a lot of people like them and then started an accounting firm, uh, partnered up with the CPA and then found three to four more CPAs um, to build this like tech-enabled accounting firm. Um, kind of focus on the self-employed individuals to convert uh, from 1099 to S-corporations uh, entity to save taxes. So version one of yes. Soraban was tech-enabled accounting yes. services firm. Yes. And it's a sort of, a, it was a interesting journey in which I can kind of go into uh, more details later. But it was a tech-enabled service business that I started and spent two years basically building double-entry bookkeeping software, try to figure out how, integrate, how to integrate with any, all kinds of software out there. Um, also figured out, uh, built out of like a form on our own. And that's where we, we gotten some insights to build the software, just pure software for accounting firms. I love it. Yeah. So is the software for accounting firms that help um, solo uh, contractors or is it for the contractors themselves? Well, it started out some, something like that, but it ended up becoming a bigger problem. So there was a lot of individuals. So it doesn't have to be a self-employed individuals. So there's also small businesses that we also help. Uh, but there's a lot of like 1040, we call this individuals. So anyone who has a W-2 or, you know, 1099s or um, that year, it was also really crazy with a lot of like, you know, um, kind of the age of Robin Hood, crypto and everything. So a lot of people had a lot of tax forms. And so the accountants were sort of overwhelmed collecting all this information from all their clients. And so we really leveraged um, that period to um, really double down our software. So can I ask a question? Yes. You said that you believed you were the only person who didn't know about these tax breaks or the tax laws. Why did you believe that? Yeah, so I think, I think it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I spent a lot of time, um, I think most people when they think about taxes, it's just very, very overwhelming. Um, even the basic withholding rules, like you just don't know what, what, what that is even sometimes. People don't know why they're getting tax refunds. <laughs> So at the time, I was, you know, first few years out of college, so I didn't know anything about taxes. I had my parents take care of all my taxes. And keep in mind that I was also um, an immigrant, so, you know, coming from Korea, it was a very different tax system. Yes. And so um, hearing about, like, government sending you W-2s and things like that, it's just, it was just overwhelming. So at the time, I was like, maybe all Americans learned it um, at school. Um, it was maybe tax one-on-one -on -one class that I didn't take. <laughs> And so Which, I had that, you know, doubts about myself, right? Like, I don't know anything about taxes. And so that's just, I think that's kind of where it came from. Yeah, it's a new language for everybody. I mean, tax is a new language for everybody, but probably especially if you didn't grow up in this country, like they may, it's like a, a second, a second uh, or third language yeah, uh, in yeah. addition. And it's a, it's a crazy um, complex um, system now. Uh, when I actually think about it, it's an incentive program that government built to incentivize all, all, all the people. So, for example, if they want to have more, if they want the people to have more kids, they can give out more tax credits for you know people who are having kids. Or if they want more small businesses, then they can actually 
give out a lot of refunds for starting a business or a lot of tax um, benefits. And so I realized it was a really a kind of a huge, um, it's an actually like a genius idea to create incentives for and controlling kind of the behavior of the people in America. But so, it also creates a massive amount of complexity. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. And that's one of the reasons I believe that tax laws won't really go away because it's just, it just gives so much power to the government as well um, that it makes it really, um, it's hard to make it simplified, if that makes sense. So tell us about Soroban today. Uh, I want to, let's, let's, move, let's move into the origin story, Soroban today, and then um, if, we, if we can do that. So what, does Soroban address all this complexity that you're talking about? Is that part of what Soroban does today? Yes, well, well, we went through a couple of iterations and then pivots, uh, but now what we do in, for the past two years, what we've been working on is uh, we basically now help accounting firms modernize their client data intake as well as a service delivery process. Um, so if you look at the accounting firms today, a lot of the firms are currently collecting clients' information over PDFs, emails, and then really clunky client portals. And there's also reasons why people are doing that. It's really hard to personalize all this way to um, collect information from their clients. Um, so, but we figure out a way to um, integrate and work with these legacy accounting software in the market. And so by doing that, we were able to kind of um, you know, grow with all these accounting firms um, who wants to really modernize and automate as much as intake process as possible. And so that's just kind of where we are today. And that's um, our beachhead right now is to focus on the kind of the individual side. Um, accounting firms work with thousands of clients sometimes, and it's impossible to track all these things. And so we basically help automate that part. I love a good productivity workflow automation story personally, and especially when it's applied to a vertical uh, software. I'd love to hear more about, um, and I think there's so much for other founders to learn about um, getting in the mind of your customer and really understanding what your customers want or need. What is the main thing that, what's the biggest problem that Soraban solves for, for customers. So when you're talking to customers, what is it that, what's the value that they're getting from, from your product? Yeah. So first of all, you know, you need to understand, uh, kind of the life of the accountants during the busy season. And it really starts there. Um, you know, fortunately I had a, a couple of friends and family who are CPAs and, you know, they always have to go through a crazy, crazy work hours during busy season as much as 70 to 80 hours a week. Um, and that's like a now requirement in the industry. Right. You're, you're, you, it's, they call it black month where you can't take vacations. And so, um, but what they go through during January through April pretty much is that clients start to just throw all these documents, tax documents or information that sometimes accountants don't need, but they're sending health insurance information or um, you know, a new job or a new baby information. All this information all comes in around January through March. And imagine that. And then everyone is also following up with you as if they're the only client of yours, right? And so they're asking, when are you done with my return? Hey, where's, my, where's, the, where's, where's the status? You know, what's the status of my return? What about my business? Here's other seven businesses I started, right? And so during those times, accountants are always context switching. Um, and they, but then the problem is that they don't have enough information to get started with the work, the preparation work. And so imagine come in January, they send you two W-2s, and then they said, hey, I'm, I think I'm going to give you a couple more documents. I don't know where it is at. And two weeks later, they're following up with you. Hey, where's my return? And you're like, wait, you said you're going to provide me with something, but you never provided me anything. And the client was like, oh, okay, okay. But imagine that just that interaction, you know, the firm has to go into the status or CRM or their tax offer and then check what's, what happened, right? And imagine now you have 10 or 20 staff 
all doing it this all at the same time. So information is coming in like you know kind of in a piecemeal manner, right? And it's really hard to uh, context switch. And if you're context switching all the time, you don't have time to prepare. And so what we do now is that we basically um, basically standardize the whole process of intake. So where we tell the clients, hey, here are all the things that you need to provide upfront, and we send reminders automatically. We also personalize the list per client, and so the client can keep track of, hey. Oh, I see. I still, I'm still missing these three documents, right? So what we now help our customers do is basically we take care of all the intake process. We take care of the whole problem for them, and so they can just focus on, oh, these people finished their returns you know, or finished their uh, questionnaire, and then now we can get started now. Is the way that CPA firms think about this is if I buy Soraban software, I can do X number more returns, or I can is that the, do they think about this as a productivity more returns per professional? Is that the way they think about it, or what's how do they measure the value that Sorban creates for them? Yeah, so number of returns directly correlates with kind of the revenue they're making. Um, now, you you will see more and more uh, firms starting to focus outside of tax preparation. So tax preparation is not the only revenue source, um, and the reason for that is that tax prep is more like a compliance work. Right. In compliance work, you can't make that much money uh, as a, a tax professional. But what, where you can make a lot of money is just businesses, relationships, or tax planning, tax strategy. And so if you, if, if you look at the accounts of life, they're spending maybe 60 70% of their um, work hours in tax prep process. So they don't even have the time to go back to these you know, really wealthy clients who may need tax services, right, or tax planning on all these services that could generate way more revenue for the tax, tax uh, more than the tax prep work. So they're spending the highest, like a majority of their time on the lowest revenue producing activities for the, for the firm. Yeah, a lot of services are also break even because a lot of these tax firms now have to compete with TurboTax. Right. Where TurboTax is saying, hey, it will do for 120 bucks. And one of your clients said, well, why aren't you doing my return for 100 bucks or 120 bucks or, or else I'll go with TurboTax, right? So that's the dynamic that firms have to deal with. And so with our software, um, they get to automate that, the tax prep compliance work so they can still keep that relationship with their client base and then, you know, now do the upsell or kind of a cross-sell with different services and different products that they have. I love it. What yeah. a powerful product. Can you give us any insight into the growth profile and by any measure you're comfortable sharing? How is uh, a uh, proud, uh, proud Soraban investor over here at uh, Phoenix Ventures? You were the first investment out of, uh, out of our fund, too, here. But uh, tell me about uh, the, the growth profile of Soraban over the last year or, or whatever you'd like to share. Okay, let's take a short break and hear again from our sponsor of the Phoenix Founders Podcast, Arizona Venture Development Corporation. I'm here again with Andy Lombard, President and CEO of AVC. Andy, tell us more about the work you do here and what you see happening over the next three to five years for capital availability here in, uh, in, in Arizona. Yeah, Greg, as you know, uh, better than anyone, we've all looked at the last decade and said, boy, we could use more capital in the state of Arizona, especially venture capital. We've done a good job on startups. I think we've got, done a, also a good job on increasing the quality of those startups. I believe we need to focus on those two items continuously. Losing those items, we're gonna be in trouble. So keeping our focus on those items is important. But the capital side, <clears throat> if you look at two years ago, I estimate that we had about 20 to $50 million of dry powder for venture capital that was designated for the state of Arizona. 
Right now, um, our figures are looking at a combined $1.36 billion of new capital that has started to inflow, either from funds that are domiciled here or general partners that are domiciled here. So this is a very significant shift of now adding the really important ingredient of capital to the state. We don't want to stop. We want to get this to be much greater than that. But we think that that is uh, going to be a huge impact over the next uh, two years. And incredible momentum over the last few years. So congrats on that and on all the work you've done. Well, thank you so much. It's been an honor to do it. Uh, as you know, Greg, uh, we, we startup geeks are pretty much addicted to this stuff. It's it's just so much fun. It's hard work and, and it's rewarding. Healthy addictions. I love it's it. It's healthy addiction for sure. Yeah, yeah. We're incredibly proud and um, I'm humbled by it. just our team executing really well here. Uh, for the past, um, in the last year, just a year ago, our team size was about four people. And then our, uh, you know, our revenue has, you know, since then quadrupled um, it's just from a year ago. And it's, it's, it's sort of crazy um, how at the time it's just we were focusing on growing 10 to 20 percent month over month. And then over time, it just becomes a bigger number um, over time. So, um, yeah, so our customer count too also quadrupled as well, and you know our ACVs are increasing, um, and more and more uh, firms are now talking about us, and so um, you know we're quite optimistic about kind of the months and years to come. Yeah. What's Con- driving your growth? Yeah, it's, it was I think mainly about our um, first of all the COVID situation. Um, a lot of the firms were previously working with their clients through over mail or drop off, right? People come into the office. But during that season, um, you know, a lot of firms realized, like during the COVID time, a lot of firms just didn't want to have their client base, like thousands of clients coming into their office and drop off papers. You know, that's just sort of inefficient. And you have to meet and have masks and everything. So um, after the COVID, um, it just seemed impossible to, like, you know, maintain that um, kind of a relationship with clients. So, and then they realized some of the clients started providing stuff over email, and that created all these problems. And more clients are now comfortable just sending you emails rather than dropping it off. And so it created all this problem of, you know, now client portal wasn't good enough. And so that's where we came in and we started building it out. And that, that's how we were able to get uh, quick traction. Um, are, are you getting word of mouth traction here? Like are your customers telling their CPA friends about it? Is that where it's coming from? Yeah. So CPA and the accounting industry is really strange. So technically when you look at the accounting firms, they're competitors to each other. Um, but, but they like to go to all these conferences and they like to talk to each other as if they're like, Hey, we're ahead, but here's what we're doing, what you guys should do. And so, um, you know, we randomly see inbounds from Twitter and I just, we don't even have a Twitter account or someone (laughs) would say, Hey, I found you on LinkedIn. I found you on YouTube. Like there's a YouTube. (laughs) And so I don't know how people are talking about, about us, but you know, that's where we were surprised that like, wow, people talk to each other. And sometimes people didn't even buy our product yet, and but they tell their friend about it and that person buys our software, right? It's like, wow, they have a lot of trust with each other. And, and you know, to really win long term in this industry, it's gonna be really the word of mouth. Yeah, you've got you've got what what people would describe as market pull, right? The yes, markets yes. you're 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 doing outbound sales and marketing too, but you've got people just showing up at your door saying, Hey, I heard about this. You also have a good reputation in the industry mm-hmm. and when something's growing a lot, people that kind of spurs more growth, I think, as well. So, yeah. I wanted to ask you about uh, of of probably most companies we invest in. Mm. You you've done you've had remarkable growth with 
really uh, impressive efficiency. Mm. Like, wh why do you think, wh what, what is it about you or the company that allows you to have such efficient growth? I mean, you, you've, you, you haven't spent that much money relative to what you've raised. And so you've just been super efficient. How have you done that? Yeah. Um, so there was, I think, two, two parts to it. One part was that um, my upbringing. Um, so our parents were, you know, we weren't super well off when we were, you know, um, when we moved to the United States with the family of five. So um, at the time, my dad was a math teacher. And so you can think of math teacher in the uh, U.S. The salary is not so great. Teachers in the U.S., just the salaries are not Don't great. get paid. Yeah. And so, um, so that was pretty much the only income coming in for the family. And so we really had to make everything kind of work with whatever we were, you know, given. And so through that process, I realized, wow, you can actually go quite far, um, you know, um, to, again, it's for our family, it was a family of five, you can stretch out very little money um, to just feed everybody and then save some money and everything. So that gave me a, kind of an insight around, wow, you, if you can actually think about it and if you're given the constraints, you can actually spend a lot less money than you think. Um, and the second part is that it's, it's really, uh, I give a lot of kudos to uh, Y Combinator. Uh, Y Combinator uh, just really emphasized the point that there is no correlations uh, between the revenue growth and, the, um, and basically the burn or expense. And so they realized that a lot of companies raise four or five million dollar seed rounds only to just spend that within two to three years. And it, it was the same amount of time it took for the company that maybe raised 500K or one million, and they also spent two or three years. So they found no correlation and they were so shocked by that. Uh, but they actually found an interesting insight where they said that if you raise just a little less than what you need, you end up actually going three to four years because now you're constantly thinking about how to innovate our product better, like how do we get to a stronger product market fit to make sure that um, you know, we, run, we don't run out of money. And so I think it's really understanding the fact that the constraint definitely does breed more creativity and you'll figure out a way to um, you know, spend money wisely uh, when you have some more constraints. It sounds like Y Combinator was really influential on you. Can we talk about Y Combinator for a minute? There, yeah. there are a handful of Y Combinator companies in, uh, that are here in Arizona. Um, we, we'd love to have more, more that are here too. But what was the main thing? Uh, what made you seek out YC, first of all? And then two, uh, what did you, sorry for the compound question here, but uh, why did you seek out Y Combinator? And then two, what, was, what were one of the main takeaways you got from Y Combinator? Yeah, so... Obviously, the Y Combinator is a, sort of like a three-month boot camp for startups. Yep. Um, and, um, and we were fortunate uh, because it, it's a very, very um, – it was an interesting process for us. We were one of the companies that got into YC with just an idea. And it was also um, – you know, it was also – YC also is very, very um, adamant about only funding – you know, a founding team with the founding team. So there has to be two or three co-founders, things like that. So uh, my company joined as a solo founder uh, company. So it was maybe 5% of their batch, 5 to 10% of their batch are usually solo founders. And so I was incredibly, um, you know, um, humbled by that, you know, that, that the fact that they decided to give us, give us a chance. And so, uh, but I will say that it wasn't a smooth sailing um, after YC. It was just um, during that process, it's a very stressful process because they basically... Um, you know, YC partners will basically check in with you every week uh, on the progress. Um, and you, you will have one KPI, which is usually a revenue. And they will basically ask, whatever you did, you, it's great that you did this or that, but like, did you increase your revenue at the end of the day, right? And they will basically ask you in front of 10 to 15 other founders, 
that are supposed to be a good, you know, a friend with you after the match. So you don't want to look like a fool. Or you don't want to look like a, an incompetent person. And so you're constantly, you know, focused on like, okay, well, if I don't increase my revenue, I'm going to look like really, really bad next week in front of all the YC partners as well as the other founders. And so you go through that process and you, you get really, really good at focusing on what matters. Um, you just sort of don't think about anything around, you know, conferences. You don't think about, you know, making friends with other founders sometimes, but you're just so focused on like driving this revenue up and then figuring out like, what can we do to this week to drive that, increase our revenue by 10% or 20%. I week. love that. So that was sort of the, something that really changed the trajectory um, of Sorobin. I love that. Yeah. Going through Y Combinator, did you consider moving or, in your case, starting Soroban in another city? Like, why did you choose Phoenix? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, we were, again, lucky in the sense that Y Combinator, um, before, before this batch, I think they didn't have any, they never done a remote batch. And Soroban was actually one of the first batch as a remote, a fully remote batch. And it actually worked out a lot better than we thought. You can imagine um, before it was a, you know, you meet everybody, everybody will meet in San Francisco or Bay Area. Um, and for three months, um, you're meeting all these people, networking. And then you also have a demo day at the end where you get to pitch in for a couple thousand investors uh, for one minute. Um, but we did that all over um, um, internet, basically over Zoom. And so, um, so that was a very, very... Um, fortunate thing because if I actually did the kind of in-person thing, I would probably end up being there because all the company batch mates, batch mates and uh, section mates, they'll all be in Bay Area as well. And then I would feel the kind of need to also be there. But because it was a remote batch, everybody was also calling in from remotely and then it actually worked out a lot better than we thought. And so that's when I realized, oh, I don't really actually need to be in the Bay Area to you know, raise money. Uh, you know, we raised at the time about $1.3 million all within a couple days, all over Zoom. Um, it would have been a two to three month process if it was in person. That's amazing. I mean, so so that was a kind of an a, incredible moment. Um, but I also, I, but I do think that there are some cases where you, you just wanna be closer to your customers. And so for us, it was, we're, we don't serve startup founders. And so we don't really, the need of going to Bay Area is even, you know, it's more diminished for us. But for other founders, if you know who are listening, um, if you're starting a company to serve other startup founders, sometimes better to also be in Bay Area potentially to serve those kind of uh, customers. If you liked this episode, let us know and subscribe to hear more at phxfounders.com. Founders.com.